Kirby Alpert, the team of the Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is a contributor to Yahoo Sports and also author of The Arm, Inside the Billion Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports, a book which, if you're listening on Tuesday, is coming out today, and if you're listening on a different day, came out on Tuesday. In any case, the guest is Jeff Passan. Jeff Passan is the guest in what follows. The listener can expect to find a case study in symbiosis. Jeff Passan is an author who needs to promote his book. Carson Sestouli is the host of a podcast who needs podcast guests. Please observe as Jeff Passan discusses his book. Carson Sestouli, me, asks him questions about that book while also simultaneously producing sufficient content, a sufficient quantity of content to retain his job, which is to say my job. In any case... Jeff Passan is amusing. Allow me to ask him a question about the actual process of promoting Jeff Passan's book, The Arm. Let me ask you, when you're when you're promoting this book in New York City, what are what are people asking you? Um just the same old more delirious moments like that, and also that precise delirious moment in what follows, as Jeff Passan promotes himself. And in the spirit of promotion, allow me to promote Another entity, and that is SeatGeek.com. Hey, you, you ever been frustrated, tempted to buy tickets online? You gotta, you go to a site, and then they tell you one price, they quote one price, and then you get to the checkout area, checkout area, and then there's a different price? Allow me to suggest SeatGeek. They're kind of, they've made it easier than ever to buy and sell sports tickets and concert tickets and probably other manner of tickets. As a member of the Baseball Writers Association, I do not have to pay for baseball tickets, However, if I were to do such a thing, I would definitely go to SeatGeek and, for example, find a $10 ticket to the April 13th game at Fenway Park between Baltimore and Boston. A $10 ticket. That's unheard of this day and also this age. And yet it's available at SeatGeek. How do they make it happen? I don't actually know. However, it's been relayed to me that what they're able to do is essentially aggregate tickets from multiple sites all into one central location. Furthermore... SeatGeek allows one to create alerts for upcoming games or events for those instances when uh, when prices fall. So you can take advantage of the cheapest ticket prices available. Furthermore, SeatGeek has a grading system based on value, so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you can buy, you can utilize what I can only imagine is state-of-the-art technology. And you can see you can use detailed maps to actually see the view from the seat that you've chosen. And as I mentioned, the price is the same from start to finish. Unlike StubHub, for example... Unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from the beginning to the end of your transaction. Fortuitously, as the host of Fangraphs Audio, I'm allowed to offer a $20 rebate to listeners after the first SeatGeek purchase. Here's how you do it. To get your $20 rebate, download the free SeatGeek app. The free SeatGeek app. Go to the Settings tab and click Add a Promo Code. Enter a promo code. In this case, it's Fangraphs, F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S, F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code FANGRAPHS today or at your earliest convenience. That's fine. Okay, that is the sponsor's message. That is one sort of promotion. Allow us to venture into another one. What is it? It's FANGRAPHS Audio. Who does it feature? Jeff Passan, author of The Arm. When does it begin? Right now. I just committed right now, uh, which is, and I think you know this as well as anyone, Jeff, you can't place your call before opening call burner. That is just, it's a, it's one of the, I think it was uh, one of the original sins. I think so too. I yeah. think it, I'm shocked that it's not among the Ten Commandments. Yeah, that's Open true. Open call burner before you place your call. It might have been, yeah, it might have been the 11th or one of 11th through 20 that was unfortunately broken. I, th- I, think, I think it was 10B and they just flipped a coin. I like the idea of because essentially that's that, that's the root of laws, right? I mean, that's one of the versions. I think Hammurabi had a code. Didn't he have a code of some sort? I'm sure he did. Yeah, and there were some others. Actually, I believe Solon, Solon, S O L O N, 
It's funny you say that because I'm actually from Solon, Ohio. It's funny you say that. I learned that from Wikipedia.com. Uh, and, it, and it happened to remind me of Solon, the actual Greek person. Um, what? Why do you know your Greek mythology? About whom one can read in maybe maybe in Herodotus's histories. I'm going to trust you on all of these things. Yeah, that's best. Uh, and uh, in any case, I think Solon had some laws too. But laws, and in particular those which are, uh, of course, through Major League Baseball, we see that they have – there are headings and subheadings and sections and subsections. There are those. Numbered points and lettered points. And uh, But I like the idea of, of, a, of a 10B is my point or 10A. Yes. I, th- I think it's 10B because yeah. 10A is probably what they went with. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. There, was, there, was, there were two proposals on the table for the Tenth Commandment. Yes, it was either it was either don't covet, yeah, or or place a call after you activate mm-hmm. call. Yeah, coveting gets uh, quite a bit of attention. It does. <clears throat> do you I actually like... do you actually know uh, do you know what the tenth commandment is? I believe the tenth commandment is coveting. Is it not? It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, uh, I the don't neighbors... know. I don't know the first nine, but I I covet so much I get reminded of it. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of coveting. Thou shalt not covet. Thy neighbor's I, – I frequently it goes thy, thy neighbor's wife. That is accurate. Yeah. That's right. And that is not always entirely relevant. For example, if you live in the Castro district of San Francisco, <laughs> um, you could you could spend all day attempting to covet thy neighbor's wife and come up – it would be fruitless. <laughs> but that you should you – should, I don't think you should covet anything that belongs to your neighbor is the point. I don't know. I, I sort of covet my neighbor's lawn. Okay. All right. Now, wh- now I was going to ask you this this hot question, which is, where are you right now? Uh, I'm in New York right now. New York, New York State. New York City. New York City. Okay. Yes, sir. And do you reside in New York? I don't. I reside in Kansas City. Oh, okay. Wow. And what are you? Are you there performing some sort of promotional business? That is correct. Okay. And actually, yeah. it should be noted. What you're doing right now is performing a sort of promotional promotional business too. I am. This is different than more most promotional businesses, though. You're okay. you're not the you're not the you're not the classical promotional business type, which is why I'm going to enjoy this. I hope you do, and I want you. I am taking a cue. I am copying, uh, for example, the the format, the template that has been laid out by uh, late night hosts. Up till now, which is a person, a person will arrive, someone who has promotional interests, right? So you say a person who's been in a movie, but this is not the bulk of the conversation. All that needs to happen is that there is a pleasant conversation and the name of the movie is mentioned. Correct. And people leave saying, oh, I like that. And in the case of someone who's written a book, I like that Jeff Passan. I wonder, I got to look into this book he's written. That's true. And if they want to do that, they can go read what Paul Swyden wrote. That's true. And he has a review. What? To, he will have it. This is going up Tuesday morning. This will, I believe his review is going up Tuesday morning as well. This is a coordinated effort, it looks like. Oh, I'm, I'm just on top of my promotional business. Yeah, there you go. What other, what, let me ask you, when you're, when you're promoting this book in New York City, what are, what are people asking you? Um, just the same old. How did you? <laughs> <laughs> how, did, how did you uh, how did you come up with this? How long have you been working on it? What's it about? Uh, essentially, so, wait, so I, I mean, essentially that, all the questions <laughs> that show they haven't read it, mm-hmm. but they know that I'm coming on the show only because I want to talk about it. So okay, they're, very, they're, very they're, good. So they're indulging me. I have a pressing question. From what what I have gathered from some of the promotional material related to this book, yes, is that you you that this book required you you were embedded at some point with at least two players isn't that right not quite embedded but definitely definitely with them a fair bit okay yeah. and you didn't covet anything belonging to them i hope did you i i i covet todd coffee's torso oh yes that's right well ample i believe is that right <laughs> that, that would be correct yeah um i believe you also did you not travel to japan i did indeed travel okay and then you also I believe, given the, at least the very least the title of 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 a piece that appeared at Deadspin in the last forty eight hours, you appear to have. Did you watch a Tommy John surgery? I was in the operating room during a Tommy John surgery. Okay. That is correct. I'm going to ask you about that momentarily. No, well, no. First, did you vomit? 
I did not. I, I have an iron stomach. Like mm-hmm. I, uh. You should also get that checked out though, by the way. I know. It really is. It's, it's amazing that yeah. my wife's the only one before this who knew I was a cyborg and now the secret's out. Yeah, now it's out. Um, so what it, what it sounds like, what it, my basic point is this, collecting together these disparate facts, is it seems as though this book, this, now the things I mentioned do not even require the actual process of composition. Okay? <laughs> Correct. So what I'm getting to is it seems like it might have been quite a bit of work. It was a lot of work. Yeah. I've been doing it for four years now. So. Okay, four years of work. Now, are you yeah. also are you also fulfilling your obligations at Yahoo.com during this whole time? Uh, you'd have to ask my bosses that, but I, I think so. You haven't been canned in the meantime. I have, I have not. That may, that may happen though. Okay. That, may, that may happen because I'm spending too much time on the promotional activities for this book. Right, but it will, at some level though, because you're also helping the the Jeff Passan brand. Yes. Okay. I, so that must be of some benefit to them as well. One would one would think. One okay. would hope. All right. It's a bustling brand, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So you're in New York City now, but you you're from uh, you live in Kansas City. I do. Is it because you're from Kansas? Wife is from Kansas City. Okay. I, yeah. I am from. You're, are you from Ohio? Is that is no? That, you're not. Do you no. live in Ohio? No. Do you have any connection to Ohio? I've lived in Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah, that's all the same. Yeah. Uh, no, but I do know <clears throat> there was, I was going to say, it's not, well, in fact, it's not Dollar Sign in the Muscle. There's another great book written by a, written about a scout, a little Italian man, and he was from Italy. Yes. No, he was not from Italy. He was from Ohio, which also ends with a vowel. But um, I think that there might actually be um, I will do some clandestine research on this as I talk, but um, he was a scout who died a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, this is that's possible. Yeah. Um, but but the point is that um, the book follows him around, and he was uh, it's a, it's a great it's a great book, and I will hope that I can eventually get to the title. But the point is that um, that uh, there seem to be more Italians than I anticipated, because I believe also, for example, Dean Martin is from Ohio. Uh, Dean Martin is from Ohio. Yeah, I think I think there are a bunch of Italians from Steubenville, maybe. Steubenville is a city. I did not know it was an Italian-populated city, yeah. though. Well, I've come across a bunch of Italians from there, including this guy, which is – I can't – I'm not going to – Are we actually recording right now? Is this yeah, this is, this, is, this is content, yeah. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. I wasn't yeah. quite positive yet whether we were segueing in uh, or – gentle – yeah, it's a gentle segue. I, I think it's I, I think it's very smooth. So apropos of none of the questions that I asked you earlier about your promotional material, but how did you get this idea and how long did it take you to write the book? It's uh, <laughs> a great question. I yeah. need to pull I need to pull the script up on this one. Yeah, uh, all right. I actually I don't know if I've told this story. Um, I might have at one point or another, mm-hmm. but uh, my son Luke was a month old and. It's three o'clock in the morning and I'm sitting there giving him a bottle. And you know how your mind at 3 a.m. just vacillates between delirium and genius, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the, and the, the threshold between the two is, is very difficult to understand. Would you say it, it maybe problematizes the idea of insanity? It does. Yeah. It okay. Does. Oh, good. As it long be- as we're on that. No, it totally makes me understand it because yeah. you're sitting there and you're thinking I have the best idea in the world and you wake up the next morning and you think that's the dumbest thing I've ever thought of. Uh-huh. Uh, but earlier uh, in in the week uh, for a story that I was planning on writing, I'd been talking with uh, Dan Duquette about how they were handling Dylan Bundy and I'd emailed Alex Anthopoulos about how they were handling Noah Syndergaard, uh, Aaron Sanchez and Justin Nicolino. And – the consensus I got from – is two people a consensus? No, not really. Yeah, it's, I, you might need three. I think, yeah. I think um, the, the uh, se- how about this? The, we'll, we'll just shorten it. The sense I got from the two of them yeah, very good. is that there really was no rhyme or reason to why they were limiting the innings of these young frontline pitchers. And they didn't know how many innings they should throw and they didn't know how many pitches and they didn't really know anything. They were just guessing. And I thought to myself, uh, if this is a, uh, a $8 billion a year industry as it was back then, and they are guessing 
on the thing that they spend as much money on as anything, what the hell is going on here? Mm-hmm. And I started thinking of different chapters I could do, you know, sitting in on a surgery and uh, following around one player as he comes back from a surgery and something on Nolan Ryan and something on how kids are being treated and something on freaks and, uh, you know, all these disparate stories seem to tie back to this one main thing which was the pitching arm and i thought to myself that night as as my child was very slowly eating uh this sounds like a book and the more i thought about it uh the more i agreed with myself (laughs) and uh i it was just a matter of finding the right guy to follow around and i got rejected by the first two guys i tried but then uh, I had a jackpot, and Daniel Hudson and Todd Coffey said yes at about the same time. <clears throat> so the real question is, or the real point is, if it, now if one wants to write a book, does that mean it's necessary to have children? Oh, you don't have children, right? No, I don't, no. You have written a book, right? I've, I've written stupid books. Hey, a book's a book, man. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Was, I guess it a, it, was it a book or a pamphlet? Um, certain people might refer to it as a chapbook. Oh okay. uh, no no I mean I've written a couple I, yeah uh, no let's not let's not let's not explore this issue <laughs> let's not explore this issue the um so it's not necessary it, well let's say it's probably not necessary to have a child regardless yeah I would actually advocate uh not having a child if you're going to write a book okay right because of the because of all the hours the, as we've discussed correct there's so, a, there's there's not a lot of time in the day and. Uh, Children, children kind of demand time. Right now, so here's the thing that you mentioned: the, 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 it's a, it's an expensive, or no, I don't know if it's an expensive. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, American currency invested in in pictures. Um, it's but, expensive. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like like you said, uh, Dylan Bundy, for example, was what he was a top five pick for the uh, fourth overall, fourth six million dollars. Six million dollars. Six million. So okay, so that's that's quite a bit of money, right? And then, but it, so simultaneous to that, we have this, we have a poorly understood science uh, upon which hinges the entire career of these. Well, to the to the teams, to the teams, they're people, but the teams, they're also assets. And then the players themselves, um, I'm sure that. Uh, the, I mean, this is obviously very important to them as well. And yet it's not uh, – where would you put it on the uh, – of course, if we call, for example, anthropology or um, or uh, sociology, if we refer to those as soft sciences, yeah? Mm-hmm. And then what, physics uh, as a hard science? Where where does the science of the arm, where does it fit it on that particular spectrum? Can it be all of the above? Because I think that's one of the more fascinating parts of it. We we can look at the the hard science uh, to try and understand uh, how the arm works, mm-hmm. and and that's been the most difficult part of it. Some of the smartest people I've met in baseball have spent their careers trying to understand it and still don't. So the doctors who uh, fix it and the researchers who look into it and they're trying to find the smoking gun and they still have it yet. Uh, but with the soft sciences, uh, I think that's the, that's what drives the story. Uh, it's not just Hudson and coffee getting hurt and coming back. It's what goes on in between those two days that makes for, for such a fascinating uh, rich look into what it's like to lose your livelihood and do everything you can to get it back. Yeah, that's a good point. The, the one about the livelihood, I guess, is that it, it and for pitchers in particular, not it's not that batters don't get injured ever, but right for pitchers in particular, they they can be, you can when they're when they're at the top of the game, as I'm sure, for example, Dylan Bundy was as an amateur. Mm-hmm. I, I, he was basically untouchable, right, pitching yeah. in Oklahoma or whatever. Yeah, ridiculous. Right. So at that point, you are almost universally adored, and, and you know there are some there are a number of organizations uh, organizations tripping over themselves to court you. I mean, obviously the draft uh, you know makes it a little bit less romantic that part of it, but they're willing to give you a bunch of money. Uh, and then once upon finding out uh, that the, uh, a pitcher that he, once finally he's injured, then uh, he essentially 
he loses his magic power, right? Yeah, uh, it's not a it's not a death sentence. I mean, we can look at Jose Fernandez and Strasburg and Matt Harvey and help uh, the Mets' entire rotation, aside from Noah Syndergaard, and say that uh, once you get hurt, you can come back. But that's also uh, a bit of a fallacy because a lot of guys get hurt and don't come back. And we hear this number, you know, between 75 and 83 percent of guys reach their previous level. And that, that's fine. That, that's the goal. But are they reaching their previous level of stuff? Are they reaching their previous level of success? And the answer is not yes. Uh, there are guys who will come back and be just as good as they were, but there are plenty who will come back and, and not be close to what they were. And, uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see the next generation of pitchers, uh, many of whom are getting Tommy John surgery at 16 and 17 and 18 years old. And the lifespan on the new ligament, it's not long. Mm. I, I, be, I believe Todd Coffey had the longest lasting first ligament, uh, first replacement ligament that tore and necessitated a revision. And his lasted for 12 years. Oh, 12 years in between Tommy John surgeries? Twelve years. Yep. Oh man. Yeah. It was hey, not hey, not good. Here's a question: Do do citizens, do normal citizens walking around get get the same get this procedure? They could theoretically, mm-hmm. uh, but generally speaking, it's not one of those injuries that you suffer uh, from a, a one-time incident. It's mm-hmm. not a it is not a catastrophic. I just threw a baseball. Uh, as hard as I can at the, uh, at the ball game and got it clocked by the radar gun and I tore my ulnar collateral ligament. That generally does not happen. All right. What do you know about? But you could try. <laughs> I could do. Is there a DIY kit for it? I think there might be. Yeah. I think I only, I prefer like a, uh, like an artisanal small batch Tommy John procedure <laughs> that I can perform in my own house. Are you um, going to go to a doctor in Amish country? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I will. I mean, I, you know, they make the best ligaments there. Where does the ligament come from? Where does it come from? Your leg? Uh, leg or wrist. I want you to do something. I want you to take your pinky. Okay. And, Which and one? Does it matter? Either or. Take your pinky and your thumb and put them together. Yeah. Okay. Is that done? Yeah. I want you to flex your wrist, which means bring it toward you. Yeah. And right in your forearm, yeah. there should be a little thing that pops out. Do you see that? Yeah, uh, yeah, all right, fine. You might, you might not. You might not because that's called the palmaris longus tendon, and 20% of people do not have a palmaris longus. Oh, yeah, okay. So I put it for me. All right. So uh, that was the original Tommy John tendon right uh, there. Right. So that I mean, it's an anatomically inert tendon. Uh, and they well, Why take, do we have it then? Uh, is it like the appendix of of tendons? It, it is. It's it's okay. the, the appendix. Is that what we should call it? No, we're not no. doing that. Did you, are you no. trying to neologize over this all over the program? I am. I okay. am. And you're just shutting me down. Well, it's because I try and keep the the, the program free of ne- neologism. I, you know what? I actually appreciate you shutting so, me down. That was a terrible effort by me. Yeah, yeah let's do it. So, okay. So, so originally that was the one that was utilized. That was the one that was used. And, and Dr. Frank Job in 1974 uh, essentially conceived of this surgery and no one had ever thought to do it. No one had ever done it. There had been similar type surgeries in the ankle, uh, but nothing nothing with a joint like the elbow. Mm-hmm. And Tommy John uh, didn't have a whole lot to do uh, and wanted to keep playing baseball, so he said, screw it, let's try it. And uh, that was the tendon that was used, and Tommy John went on to have, I believe, went on to win more games. And I know this is fan graph, so I apologize for using the W word. Yeah, uh, went on to win more games after uh, his Tommy John surgery uh, than he did before. Yeah. Uh, try and stomach that. that yes. Uh, is there uh, vomit on keyboards everywhere now? I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I Not on mine, at least. I the, hope. Um, yeah. That. Uh, that's a, so. Tell me about. Let's get. Tell me about watching the surgery be performed. Uh, it was pretty incredible, actually, because. Mm-hmm. Uh, Todd Coffey's first Tommy John surgery did not go according to plan. Uh, the doctor, Tim Kremchek, uh, in Cincinnati, uh, opened up his wrist to take a palmaris longus and saw that it was too thin. Tissue was not good enough. Uh, so he opened up the other wrist and same thing. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. So then, so in this case, it, it uh, with the palmaris longus size size does matter to some degree. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. You want you want a you want more tendon to work with. Okay. Uh, uh, so he went into uh, the hamstring then a tendon called the gracilis, and uh, as he was looping it through, uh, it snapped. So then there was another uh, cut on his other leg. So Todd Coffey is the only player uh, in baseball history to go in for a Tommy John surgery and come out with five scars. That is that an awkward conversation for the doctor like when Todd Coffey wakes up? <laughs> it's it's probably why in his second Tommy John surgery he was as freaked out as he was about it because. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were no tendons left, but, and when there are no tendons left, the only alternative is going with, uh, a tendon from, uh, a deceased person. Yeah. And he, as he said, I do not want the dead guy's tendon in my elbow. Uh, and so, uh, Neil Elitrash, uh, the, the very, uh, handsome and talented doctor, uh, at the Curlin Job Clinic. Mm-hmm. Uh, went in uh, to his leg trying to salvage whatever was left of a hamstring tendon uh, that might be there and found that it was insufficient. And so Todd Coffey's got the dead guy in his elbow now. Todd Coffey didn't want the dead guy. He didn't, but it was either that or not pitch again. And uh, I think if he woke up uh, with a new scar on his elbow uh, without uh, being able to pitch again, that probably would not have rested well with him. So you, so you, do you see this? You, you see that what they're fishing around? You saw all this fishing around for tendons? Oh uh, yeah, Doctor Elatrash. It looked like a scene out of Alien. I mean, his his finger was inside of Todd Coffey's leg, like poking and prodding around for a good five to ten minutes, just there's trying. A, there's also a similar and also disgusting scene in David Cronenberg's Crash, I believe. That is correct. Have you yes. seen that? Did you remember that? I have, yes. I yeah. don't want to. I don't want to relive that. That was a disturbing film. That was a sort of film um, that, when it was released, um, was 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 regarded as important, and then for and then. But I feel like it's uh, dissipated. The importance has dissipated over time. Yeah, Cronenberg's Kron- films. The there's a very the, just a very small audience, I think. Yeah. That really, that really can appreciate them, and James Spader's a weird guy. Yo. Yes, he does, and he is. He continues to be. Yes, he is. Uh, so I'm. So I'm in there, and finally they say, "Okay, let's just use the use the allograft is the uh, technical term for it for uh, a deceased person's tendon." And uh, they did that and drilled holes uh, in the elbow and uh, tied it together. And then he also uh, had a torn flexor uh, flexor pronator. Uh, mass, which is the uh, forearm muscles. And so Dr. Elitrash had to fix that too. And uh, a normal Tommy John surgery is anywhere between 60 and 75 minutes. Uh, and Todd Coffey's took four hours. Ugh. Well, I want to get I want to I want to ask you again about this, this sort of moment or, or interval when players our pitchers in this particular case are forced to uh, are forced to acknowledge their their sort of uh, career mortality, if not necessarily, and, and perhaps their actual mortality. And Todd Coffee, for example, seems to become quite acquainted, at least with someone else's mortality, if it's not his own. Definitely not his own. That's actually the interesting one of the interesting things, uh, uh, you know, between these two guys that I followed. After Daniel Hudson blew his out for the second time, and that was only 11 months after his first one, he sat there and really had to think about, do I want to do this again? Because not only did he know it was going to be 15 months uh, at a minimum until he got back, but all that work flushed down the toilet like that. It, it is a just a complete uh, mind F. And, right. Uh, his dad needed to talk to him and essentially said to him, you'll regret if you don't do this. And well, I suppose, right, up until that point, and I don't know what their precise ages were, but Hudson's, what, around 30 maybe? Is that Hudson, right? Hudson is 29 now. Okay, all right. So he's still relatively young. And I and, and I would assume that much of his identity, um, cer- certainly over the last 
10, 15 years is tied pretty closely to being a baseball player. I mean, all of it really. You yeah. know, if you're, if you're a baseball player, your, your career is your life. Right. Yeah. And, and the other thing is in terms of, in terms of asking yourself this question of whether you ought to attempt another, uh, procedure and rehab, associated rehab, is it's not as though this option is available to you uh, for an infinite number of years. There are very few uh, pitchers who are over 40. Mm-hmm. So, right, in that sense, and I assume that his father said something along these lines, is you have only a window. You're not doing your, – your life up till now, you know, a large part of it has been based on this particular skill. Um, so you might as well – attempt to refine it uh, before and, and that is that is a very pragmatic true thing to say mm-hmm. that when you are at your nadir in life doesn't mean anything it's almost like you you fail to think rationally mm-hmm. and i think daniel hudson's actually a pretty rational guy but at that moment uh, just the thought of trying to come back burrows itself into uh the, the most fragile part of your mind because when you think about going out there and throwing another ball, what can you help but think of aside from the elbow ligament just going? I mean, it's it's what's happened to Jared Parker and it's right. what makes Jared Parker's story so sad that he's done it three times now and, and it just keeps breaking. And how do you convince yourself that it's not going to break again? Uh, I, that's one of the more remarkable things I think – from Daniel Hudson's comeback, and one of the things that I've really learned to appreciate from him is just the fearlessness that it takes. And uh, we we can say every ball player is fearless. If you're standing at the plate, 95 mile per hour pitches are coming within inches of you. If you're standing on the mound, you're uh, you know uh, one hard hit stat cast ball back uh, up the middle away from. Uh, I don't even want to think about what right, happens right, right. when guys get hit in the head. And so there's an inherent fearlessness in baseball players, but I think it's even more acute when it comes to uh, players who have been injured because uh, in addition to to those other fears, they can't trust their bodies because their bodies have betrayed mm-hmm. them, and how do you learn to trust your body again? Right. Well, that's interesting what you say. I, to me, the, what we have here, the two types of injuries you're describing, it's sort of like the difference between – uh, maybe driving a car and flying in a plane. It's not a, it's not a precise me- uh, analogy, but allow me to elaborate here. If you're driving a car, even though a car is more dangerous than a plane, right, you always have the impression that you are in control of what's going to happen right. to some degree. So yep. if you are pitching and you have to think about the possibility of a comebacker, you also know that you have a glove, right? right. And, and you have reactions and you have some level of confidence in your ability to avoid a comebacker. Not that that's entirely founded in in objective reality, but that's the impression. Sure. Whereas what you're describing with regard to the UCL is a sort of it, – it, it, it is sort of a bit like the plane in that you have no control over it really. Um, that, not that we know of. Uh, you know, right. maybe, maybe sometime in the next – five or 10 or 20 or who knows how many years we get a better sense of how to protect the UCL and maybe it's through training aspects. Maybe it's just, we're going to figure out it's just a genetic thing. And what about Mike Mar- What does Mike Marshall have anything to do with this? Uh, there, there is a section on Mike Marshall okay. and Mike, Mike Marshall was very, very, very far ahead of his time with regards to a lot of pitcher training exercises but Mike Marshall's problem is that he's the most dogmatic person that I've ever met. Mm-hmm. And if everything is not the full Marshall way, then it's wrong. And and I wish I wish for baseball's sake he wouldn't have been so damn stubborn mm-hmm. because if he had bent a little uh, on his ideas, which he still believes in, uh, and, and he still believes uh, he can prevent pitching injuries from happening. Uh, have you ever seen a, a Mike Marshall student throw? Yeah, I have. Right. It's kind of like... The- it's a straight over. It's frequently straight over the top, isn't that right? Yeah, it's straight over the top, and the legs are the weird part. I mean, uh, it's like you plant your front leg as your arm is is at its apex, and then you pull your front leg back and lean with your back leg forward. If you can envision this, 
Yeah, look at a YouTube video. Exactly. That's what YouTube's mm-hmm. for. Uh, but, uh, Marshall, as far as the training goes, uh, he, he had players throwing overweight balls, uh, well before that was, and I'm not even going to call it a common practice, but, uh, a practice at all in organized baseball. And he had players working with wrist cuffs and these wrist cuffs, uh, were weighted 20, 25, 30 pounds and those strengthened the muscles, uh, in the shoulder and throughout the arm. And so all of these things that he did, we've come to believe are right for modern pitchers. Uh, it's just the throwing motion nobody could ever get past. Yeah. It's, a, it's quite unorthodox, right? Uh, I mean, it's, I it's, mean, it's, that's it's, the, it, it's the most unorthodox baseball throwing motion I've ever seen. Okay. Yeah. And it's not particularly close. I mean, it looks, it is just, it is aesthetically repulsive. <laughs> like, like when you look, I know this is a bad example for saying healthy, but when Mark Pryor pitched, mm-hmm. I think in the book I called him the Vitruvian pitcher because it was just beautiful and symmetrical and everything looked so nice. It's like I think one of the reasons we all loved watching Mark Pryor so much is that his delivery appealed to our senses. And uh, our senses are wrong. Our senses aren't necessarily biomechanically accurate, but it looked pretty when he pitched. Uh, Mike Marshall's pitching motion uh fell out of the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down yeah where did it what's to what region is the ugly tree native uh he lives in zephyr hills florida and there are quite a bit of them there (laughs) (laughs) i will say uh, near where i live in new hampshire there is a uh, there is a a supermarket called market basket um, where if you visit on a winter weekend day Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see <laughs> it's a really uh you'll find a lot of people who aren't trying their hardest to look beautiful oh, uh, and uh, and i'm I'm included uh, on that same thing, but winter in New Hampshire, there's very little that one needs to be dressing up for yes you need you need to dress warm for winter. you do yeah, you need to survive so but this idea of the sort of of uh the the u c l as like as a as a as a uh, what's this? What's the study of the body when you're like uh, going to study the body? Uh, anatomy. Anatomy. Like an anatomical terrorist. Yeah? Yes. Because it's just there, and it could go any time, and the pitcher knows that he has to conduct himself a certain way in order to rehab and also make his way back to the major leagues. And, and there's this there's this part of your arm that could render you useless at any moment. Yeah, it's it's a reality with which pitchers have to live and. Yeah. It's why, you know, as I reported this book, the it, it evolved. I, I came into this thinking I'm going to find someone who knows what's really going on and figure out this problem and help cure baseball of this. And that was very hubristic of me. And I learned pretty quickly that if people a lot smarter than me don't know, chances are I'm probably not going to find out either. But, you- but what ended up happening is... I, I found numbers that were horrifying about youth baseball and uh, about how if you're pitching competitively uh, more than eight months out of the year, you're five times likelier to have an arm injury. And if you compete in showcases, I believe it's three and a half times likelier. And if you pitch year-round, I think it's eight times likelier. I mean, these staggering numbers that uh, that, that just – don't make sense. And the biggest one to me was that 56.8% of surgeries over a recent five-year period, Tommy John surgeries, were performed on teenagers. And this used to be an injury that was limited to pros uh, and maybe a college kid here or there. Maybe. Mm-hmm. But this was an injury that affected pros because they're the ones who threw the hardest. They're the ones who threw the most. Now, the fact that it's a kid, I mean, an injury that's that's targeting kids when they say epidemic it's not epidemic in the major leagues it's epidemic in a very clinical sense where i think it's attacking uh a wide swath of people uh and in the most vulnerable ones at that wait so so was it just like you know say 20 years ago is it just that kids were not injuring their uh their UCLs, or is it that if they did, they were just like, all right, I guess I'm, I'm not playing baseball anymore? I, I think there's a, a bit of both, but I think it's more that they're throwing 
uh, harder now. Uh, they're throwing more now, and the damage is coming earlier. And and a lot of that is a function of a single sport specialization uh, and bad coaching and glory hog parents. And yeah, you know, I, I I mean that's the triumvirate right there of of a kid getting hurt. And, and, and you ask, you know, was it that way in the past? Doctors looked at elbows uh, of of injured kids in the past, and. Uh, you know, James Andrews said this to me, Neil Alatrash, multiple doctors who have been doing this for a while said when they used to take MRIs of kids' elbows, uh, the elbows were perfectly intact. Uh, the, there was just some sort of an injury elsewhere that was causing the pain. UCLs were not shearing in kids nearly this young. Uh, when I used to have, uh, before he joined the Atlanta Braves, uh, I used to have Kyla McDaniel, our lead prospect analyst on the, the 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 late Kylie McDaniel. Yeah, well, erstwhile, I've also referred to him as human reggaeton re, human reggaeton horn. Yes, yes, that's that's accurate. That's Kylie McDaniel, body spray enthusiast. Anyway, the point is, <laughs> Kylie, <laughs> you know, I mean, part of Kylie's job, I mean, certainly his real job now and before you know was reporting would be to attend a lot of showcases, and there's always something. Uh, there's always something that seems slightly predatory about the showcase circuit. Slightly? <laughs> um, I'm trying to uh, I'm re- trying to regress to the mean of outrage here. Uh, be careful, but yes, it, there, there's a predatory sense, and there's also it's one which the enthusiasm you know from the clubs is matched by, as you mentioned, if not the players themselves, then at least their parents. Yeah. Who are, you know, I'm sure in many cases funding these sorts of endeavors. Well, it's, it's predatory in two respects. I cover only one of them in the book. The one I don't cover is how, uh, Perfect Game, uh, in particular, because it's the biggest showcase company of all, uh, holds showcases and needs to fill slots. And, uh, kids who have absolutely no chance of getting a college scholarship or getting drafted will pay $750 a head. Uh, to come and participate at these things because it's a status symbol to go play with Perfect Game, mm-hmm. and they're taking advantage uh, of the brand, and uh, it's it's a very unfortunate and I think misleading thing. But ultimately, that's just a that, that's a financial wrong. To me, a a truly moral wrong is knowing that year-round baseball uh, correlates very strongly with these injuries, uh, believing which. Almost everyone I know in baseball does that uh, there's a causative element to it as well, and uh, not just continuing to do it, but expanding down to younger ages. Uh, I mean, the Perfect Game started a company last year called The Series, uh, which was holding showcases for kids as young as, young as nine. Mm-hmm. What, what does a nine-year-old do? Well, the rationalization behind that is if, well, you know, from Jerry Ford who runs Perfect Game is, uh, if we had, uh, Mike Trout's measurables at eight, not at age nine, uh, and a kid, uh, showed similar, uh, characteristics uh, as far as speed and throwing velocity and whatever it may be, uh, to Mike Trout at age nine, maybe there's a chance that we get to keep that kid in baseball. Yeah. Hmm. So wait, you, so you have at least one child. A two. You have two, yeah, and you were feeding one of them, and that's what it was caused the genesis of the book. So, as a uh, you're a concerned party for at least another reason with regard to this development, besides just one who's covered it in the form of a book. <clears throat> uh, if you're, uh, if you have, if either of your children, you said, I mean, it's impossible not to make this a gendered conversation, but is one of them a boy? Both of them are boys, actually. Both of them are boys. Okay, all right. Uh, you lucked out. You didn't have to sound awkward there. Yeah, that's great. I, I mean, I will sound awkward anyway, but for right. other reasons at least. The So here's the point. Say that uh, one or both of your, your boys exhibits some uh, proclivity for baseball and pitching. How do you as a parent um, regulate that skill so that the, the kid grows up healthy both physically and like it, I mean, emotionally, you can't control that to some degree. You're going well, to ruin them regardless. It's just a question of how how much you do re- ruin them. Well, the answer is we're about to find out because <laughs> my my eight year old uh, has shown a proclivity for baseball. Yeah. And does he have pitch. Mike Trout's measurables? 
thankfully, there were no nine-year-old showcases when Mike Trout was nine years old, so I don't know at this point. But I'm guessing a skinny little Jew from Kansas City is probably not going to pull that off. How many how many people match that exact description? Skinny little Jew from from Kansas City. There are not a ton of them. No, that has to be a minority population. There are, there are not a ton of those. So who's it? Who's one other famous Kansas City Jew? Uh, Donald Fear is a Kansas City Jew. Okay, all right. So there you go. That's fine. That's there, fine. So there are two of us. All right. Actually, I do know that in the greater Kansas City area, there is a. Um, there have been now. Will your kids go to Pawnee Mission High School? Uh, close Shawnee Mission. Sh- ah, crackers. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not calling your children crackers, and that's not what I. Yeah, you know what? If you did, that would be okay. It'd be fine. Yeah. So I mean, sh- we are from Kansas, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Shawnee Mission. Yes. Shawnee Mission has produced a host of interesting pop culture icons, such as uh, Paul Rudd. Correct. Um, John Hamm. Uh, no, he's from St. Louis. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, wait, Paul Rudd, uh, Rob Nyer. I don't think Rob Nyer went to Shawnee Mission East, did he? I believe he did. Really? He's from Kansas City. Um, but you could uh, take it up with Rob Nyer, I guess. <laughs> I I'm gonna need to reach out to him. I believe he went there. The guy who plays the caveman in the caveman. Oh in wait, the... did did Nick Kroll go there? Uh. No, I don't know. I'm I just, don't believe so. I'm just lying now. Donald Fear actually did go there as well. Okay, yeah. Who else with the Shawnee Mission? Uh, and and I don't think that Paul Rudd. Uh, I'm uh, I'm using the help of our our fine friend Wikipedia here. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think Paul Rudd went to East. He might have gone to Shawnee Mission North or oh, South. Oh God! All right. Well, who who am I missing then? Pretty much no one. Oh yeah. All right. Well, so I stand corrected. I guess no one of import went there. Yeah. So I guess my my kid is. Uh... What about Eric Stone Street? Did he go there? Uh, no. He's from Kansas City though. Okay. See, Kansas City is more than one school, Carson. Yeah. Not many more, but we, we got more than that. <laughs> is there a, is there, is there a, is there a synagogue? Most, many synagogues. Okay, all right. Yeah, bustling, bustling population <laughs> of the Jews. Okay, all right. Now, will, you, will, will your sons get bar mitzvahed? Uh, I think so. You know, I want to say we're going to see. We're going to see what they think. I married a Catholic, so yeah. Uh, that's, well, that's. I mean, that's a timeless parent. Well, not timeless. It goes only back <laughs> as far as Jesus, really. But um, but the <laughs> but the Catholic and the Jew we, that occurs throughout uh, my family in many cases. I want to say, and I've said it before. I may not have said it to you though that I'm very jealous that I was not that I was not born to a Jewish family. I, I found that from a lot of people. There, yeah. There, there's, yeah. There, there's a little Jew jealousy going on. There somewhere. is, yeah. Because we do, like, we do certain things right. Is it a Jewelessy? That's another, that's a neologism. Uh, you know what? I actually was going to go there and I stopped myself. You know, that's good. I think that you're showing, uh, a, you're showing good restraint. It is. It is. I learned my lesson from the first one. The first one was so terrible that I just did not want to get called out for doing it again. Okay. Well, that's good information. Uh, I'm, you've almost fulfilled your obligation uh, to the podcast. Let me just ask you, though, how did you feel about Syracuse in their uh, Final Four run? I, I honestly could not have cared less. Really? You're yeah. an alumnus, though. Isn't that right? I am. But, but you don't the, care, though. No, but the, when, when I was at Syracuse, I worked for the newspaper, and, and there was, suffice to say, an antagonistic relationship ah. uh, between us and uh, – uh, the sports information people at the school who did not like some of the stories we were write. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Were you speaking truth to power? Is that what you were doing? Yeah, they were dicks. Oh. <laughs> Wait, is it is that now is that something that's common at it's sort of uh, schools with big athletic programs? Very very much so. It's oh. it's it's bullying and intimidation and uh you're a you're a kid so you don't know what you're doing. And in some respects that is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. But the stuff that uh the stuff that we got reprimanded for uh, was uh, it was it was wrong. That's interesting. And, and so I, I've had a very very cynical relationship with uh, with Syracuse athletics ever since. And 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 so many Syracuse alumni turn into little fawning weasels when Syracuse does well. I just I, I I've become sports agnostic. Yeah, well, and, that happens when you when you write about it. No, no, it's not that. No, it's I, not I, that. I could I could totally see myself rooting for teams, uh-huh. not in baseball, but but other teams uh, outside of the baseball realm. But 
it, I just don't enjoy it. I don't. I enjoy, I enjoy the actual games themselves. Yeah. And when you start rooting, you open yourself up for heartbreak. And I, yeah. I need no more heartbreak in my life. I have two children. That's, that's plenty right there. That's heartbreak? Having a child? Oh, absolutely. They break your heart every day and they make you want to, yeah. you, uh, jump off high, high things. So wait, so who's with the kids right now? Is your wife with the kids? My wife, uh, yes. My wife is a saint. She is, she, uh, yeah, she she's, is she's with children at the moment. And so that back is. Back in uh, Kansas City. Back in Kansas City. Prepping them so they can go succeed at Shawnee Mission East. Nicely done. You were very close to saying Pawnee again. I was. I had to, yeah, I did mark my words. All right. Well, uh, what's your next, uh, what's your next promotional venture then? Uh, go to Yahoo Sports and read all my, uh, delightful content. Is that right? Oh, no, no. I'm saying, like, who do you have to talk to next? Oh, I thought you were asking me to shill something else. Oh yeah, go, I guess yeah, that's fine. Go ahead, I'm going to Yahoo Sports. <laughs> just, just, just buy the arm. That's okay, all. Just buy the I, arm. I just, the I just, arm. I just want to make a make a list somewhere. I want to be like Molly Knight. Tony Lucadello is the answer to the question from the beginning. He yeah. is the. Uh, he lives with in, the Phillies, right? Yeah, he lived in Fostoria, Ohio. Yes. And the book about him is called uh, oh right it's called Prophet of the Sandlots the Journeys with a Major League Scout by Mike, Mark Weingartner Yes I I do remember that I think Mark Weingartner is quite talented Yeah well it was a great read I can uh, I can attest to that fact Yeah I hope you say the same about me uh 20 years after this is written Carson Well we'll see if we're both alive all right. All right. Uh, well, uh, stick around for a second. But in the mo- for the moment, I would like to say uh, thank you, Jeff Passan. The pleasure is always mine, my friend. Yeah, that has been Jeff Passan, contributor, what editor at probably Yahoo Sports, and also author of The Arm, a billion dollar industry mystery. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got mostly guys. The Arm is the The Arm. That's good enough. <laughs> Watch for the sequel with the leg later on. Right. Uh, I, I believe we have other sequel candidates right now. Is that right? Uh, Ray Ratto suggested the spleen. Okay. Uh, Mark Carrig suggested the larynx. Okay, yeah. Uh, and my wife suggested the... Nope. Yes, there it is. Your okay, wife... that could have been taken multiple ways. I, that, I meant she wins. was calling me one, yes. W- exactly. Right, would that, have been, would that have been an autobiography? <laughs> exactly. Okay, you're done. That has been Jeff Passan. Goodbye, Jeff. Goodbye, Carson. All right, stick around, though. But goodbye.